the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, uh, anything on your heart. We'll do the best that we can to to give you some direction. Uh, Our phone number for your live calls is 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I tell you every day the safest way to call from your car is to use the free KSLR mobile app. And uh, you will be connected directly to the studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Let me take a minute at the top of the program today just to thank you uh, for your expressions of kindness, the many emails that uh, I received personally uh, from people in the listening audience. Uh, we thank you for your prayers uh, for the Perez family. Um, we're just really, really grateful for your hearts and for your outpouring of love. So thank you very, very much for all of that. We're actually going to be having Nehemiah's memorial service on Monday here at the church at 5 o'clock. And we would just appreciate your continued prayers throughout the weekend. This is a really tough time for us. We had the kids come back to school. So we had one big chapel event today where all the kids could, uh, could hear their principal, Pastor Will, Talk to him about where Nehemiah is, what he's doing, help them deal with with their grief, uh, helping them deal with their grief. And uh, again, we thank you for your prayers and for your consideration. It's Wednesday. We're we're not going to be doing a regular Bible study tonight. Uh, this is a time to minister to a, our hurting bodies. So tonight, I'm going to be giving a a shorter message just on uh, the tragedy that we've all suffered and the loss. So. Um, if you are interested, it will be live streamed at calvarysa.com. Uh, but more than that, we're just, it's a, a time for the church family to, to heal and be together. Um, these are hard, hard things that we're going through. So thank you again very much for your continued prayers tomorrow because it's Thursday. Paula, who has been out of town, uh, thank you for your prayers for her as well. It's been really hard on her because she's not here with the the family, with our family. Um, She's been in Atlanta at a conference. um, and She's coming back tonight, and she'll be here on the date day edition of the program tomorrow. Uh, In part, we'll talk about this, of course, but uh, ladies, it's the one day that we set aside that is... uh, especially you, or for you, you're you're the priority. So uh, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the program. Okay, one more time for the phone number, 340-9585. Here is our first question, and it's anonymous from our mobile app. 
Pastor Ron, I have a friend who believes you have to be baptized in order to uh, receive the Holy Spirit and be saved. She references 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Can you clarify? I can do that, Anonymous. But, you know, one of the things that that um, uh, the baptismal regeneration folks, Church of Christ folks, uh, all they have to do is read the passages. These are such important things to, to learn how to study our Bible. Uh, in verse 21, um, uh, I have to go back a verse to 20. Um, Actually, I'm going to go back to, to uh, verse 18, and we'll, we'll kind of work our way through this. Uh, verse 18 in 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. By the way, people say that the Bible doesn't say Jesus was God. It just said right there, to bring you to God, He, God, was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, that does not mean, for those of you interested, that the people uh, who, who died before Jesus got a second chance. Uh, they made their decision. It's appointed that a man once to die and then face the judgment. Um, this was a victory proclamation. And then of those spirits, it says in verse 20, uh, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water, this is verse 21, anonymous, the verse you asked about. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Now, this is really important. That word symbolizes is critical to understand, or you're going to mess up your theology. There's no water in this baptism. And this is important. It symbolizes, if we study our Bibles, that's how we know uh, that baptism doesn't save. Now, uh, Peter uses the illustration of baptism in a symbolic way to explain what he means. And what he means is this. In the days preceding the flood, we know that the whole world was given over to evil. We know that uh, from, from Genesis chapter 6. Things were so bad that only eight people could be found who served God, and that's Noah and his family. So uh, that means that those to whom Jesus preached were most likely the spirits of those who died in the flood and the demonic spirits who infiltrated the world at that time. God judged the entire world, and he preached not the gospel, not second chances. He preached the cross. He preached victory over sin and death. And the rest of the verse says, uh, and this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Now this word symbolizes here. In the Greek, it means a figure or a picture. And it demonstrates the impossibility of Peter saying that baptism saves you. Um, I can never figure out why People insist that baptism is a requirement of salvation. The Bible never says so, not once. And yet people persist in perpetuating a dangerous false teaching. Peter's using the word to suggest that what saves you is what baptism represents. In the days of Noah, the flood, well, what did it do? It washed away the filth and the evil from the world. How do we get washed? Well, we get washed, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, by grace through faith, and not just there, but through many other places, scripturally, that there's nothing else to add. And the symbolism is important because baptism and what we do publicly to declare our faith in Christ, it is that obedient response. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Well, baptism is that public declaration. We also could add uh, a, a, an altar call or you accept an invitation or you, you receive Jesus Christ and publicly confess him as your Lord and Savior. All of this, and in this particular case, baptism is an obedient response to the gifts of salvation that we already received. Please don't ever forget that. Sadly, we have entire denominations in this part of the country that teaches baptism salvation, and it's simply not true. That means it's evil, not baptism. There's nothing wrong with baptism. We should do it. Jesus said to do it. But we do it in response to being saved. We don't do it to get saved. There's nothing efficacious 
in terms of salvation about going into the water. So it's very important. Um, he then finishes the, the rest of that verse by saying, it, this symbol of baptism, saves you by the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Anonymous, that's exactly what's intended there. Um, it is simply a false doctrine, and I would say a pernicious false doctrine, to insist that we need to be baptized in order to be saved. Thanks for the question. Here is another anonymous. In fact, the next two questions that I have are anonymous. Maybe somebody can call with a question to break up the two, the three anonymous questions. This anonymous question asks very simply, is it better to be single or married? Well, what's better is where you are right now. It's certainly not better to be married if you're in a bad marriage. It's not better to be married if you're not walking with Jesus. There's no value. It's better to answer the call of God in your life. Paul says, from his perspective, and remember Paul was a man who had the gift of celibacy. He had been married. We're confident of that. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and one of the requirements of Sanhedrin was that uh, you had to be married. Uh, it is likely that he had children, um, um, unless he was prohibited by God. He and his wife were prohibited by God from having children. Uh, and I say that because every Jewish family wanted to produce a lot of children. So it's certain that he was married. It's likely that he had children. And he would have lost them both when he converted to Christ. And as a result, uh, he said, I wish that all men were as I am. And by that, he means um, single and committed specifically to the cause of Christ. He said, you know, if a man's not married, then he can devote all of his strength and energy and focus on Jesus. If he's married, then naturally there's going to be a distraction. So singleness, from Paul's perspective, is better. Um, yet Paul says it's not good for man, and I would add woman, to be alone. So marriage is honored, singleness is honored. It's only in our culture that we make such a big deal about it. Um, but wherever you are, if you're married, serve God in your home. If you're married, be the husband or the wife that God wants you to be. Uh, and your marriage will be blessed. If you are single, honor God in your singleness. Remain pure. Don't pollute your heart and your body with pornography, with lust, the other kinds of things. God will give you the, the grace, the gift of celibacy um, until you get married, if you ask. Um, but embrace who you are, where you are, now, without thoughts or concerns about what comes next. It's really simple to think, well, if I was married, I'd be happier. Only if you had a good marriage, a godly marriage. So if you're single, serve God in your singleness. Honor God with purity, sexual purity. If you are married, honor God in your marriage. If you have children, make sure that your children see that their mom and dad loves Jesus. So it's not better, it's not worse. It's just where you are. For me, I'm married to Paul, it's better to be married. I couldn't do what I do without her. She can't do what God calls her to do without me. So in that regard, it's better for me to be married. Um, if I was single, I would want to be single, married to Jesus, and serving him with all of my heart and with all of my soul. So Anonymous, that's as much as I can do with a pretty basic question. Here is another anonymous question. I like this question. It's very simple. Is it okay to write in my Bible? Of course it is. Your Bible is a workbook. We need to stop thinking of it as a holy book. Now, clearly the scriptures are holy. But the book that contains them is just a book that contains the way to live, the way to know Jesus, the way to serve. And if you take notes, if you do highlighting, whatever it is that helps you study it, you do it, and you do it with all of your heart. But of course it's okay to write in your Bible. You know, it's interesting, Anonymous, in my um, 27 years with the Lord, I'm guessing, now I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing I've got a dozen Bibles that are in my office at home, uh, and I keep them. Um, I don't know 
there's not a specific reason. I've actually given a couple Bibles away, but for the most part, I keep them. But um, there, there's so many notes. In those early Bibles, there are so many notes that it's hard to find space to write anything else. And I was writing notes to myself, and I'm not talking about notes to preach from. I'm just talking about studying things. And at the first, I was a big highlighter. I would have yellow highlight throughout the Bible, and then I would write notes, and then it came just, well, just making notes. Uh, then I would try to find a Bible. I have a Bible with wide margins so I could write even more notes. Um, but as my my vision um, began to, to go, um, I get to the point where I can't even read my own writing anymore. So uh, my Bible for the last um, probably 12 years, um, there's there's almost no notes at all. Um, but my Bibles are always falling apart for use. And, you know, Paula reads now to me and she'll open up and half of the Bible seems to fall out of it. Unfortunately, pick it up and put it back where it is. But, but the Bible is just a workbook. View it as such. It contains the very words of our holy God. But the book itself is to be used. It is to be destroyed. Uh, I think you should turn the pages so much in your Bible that probably every couple of years you need to be thinking about a new one. I think it's that important. One of the problems, and you didn't ask this anonymous, but it gives me an opportunity to say it again. One of the problems with people who have now gone only electronic with their Bibles is that they don't have the joy of sitting there and wearing a Bible out. And you can, I understand, I, I have an iPad that has fixed for me to have really big printing. So if Paul is not here, I can read the Bible on my iPad. It's not the same as turning pages. It's not the same as turning a page and having that expectation, that sense of anticipation that God is going to speak to you. I was sharing in a Bible study this this, this past Sunday that um, when I'm reading the Bible, Sometimes when I am just out walking with the Lord and praying, um, if God really wants to say something important to me, something that my heart's ready to hear, or maybe direction or encouragement or, 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 or just answer a question that I have, I always get this sense, like if I'm reading uh, in Romans, I'll just give, uh, use that as an example. And, you know, I turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and I can sense this anticipatory excitement. Not mine, but Jesus's. It's almost like you're almost there, you're almost there, you're almost there. And then when I get to that verse, it's like it just jumps off the page at me. That's hard to do. On your phone or on a iPad. It's just not the same. So yes, it's okay to write in your Bible, do it, and don't worry about it. Thank you very much. 340-9585. Uh, Daniel wants to know, Pastor Ron, do you think there's life on other planets? The answer is unequivocally no, there isn't. Now, when I say life, I don't mean mold, I don't mean amoeba, I don't mean, I mean people, humans, animals. That's reserved for this one little beautiful speck in this magnificent universe here on Earth. And when I think of all of the money that we've wasted, all the money, now again, I'm not anti-space exploration. I think it's an amazing thing the bigger our telescopes get and the, the, the farther our satellites can go, the more we find out about the glory of God and the wonder of His creation. But you see, the world that rejects Jesus, they're the ones pursuing life on other planets. We've got people making plans to go to Mars and colonize Mars. Billionaires selling seats on spaceships to go there and start all over. There is nothing out there. And that which 
many people think is UFOs or space people. Uh, they're unbelievers. And what they're doing is being deceived by demons. So no, I don't believe there's life on other planets. I think it is a waste of time. If God wants us to know, he would let us know. And isn't it true that in our Bibles, Jesus said, I have told you everything, because that's what a friend does. If there was life on another planet, he would have told us. But there isn't. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Another serious anonymous question. Uh, can an abusive husband change? Um, the answer is yes, he can, but certainly not apart from Christ. And even if you have a husband that comes to Christ who has abused you, um, if he's ever put hands on you again, until you have overwhelming evidence, and I'm talking about evidence of the life change in your husband. I'm not talking about two weeks or a month or, or even a year. Overwhelming evidence that this is a man, a new creation in Christ. The fact that he can change doesn't mean you should stay. I say this all the time, Anonymous. If you are in an abusive situation, you have to leave. It doesn't matter if you know where to go, how you're going to make a living, um, get you, and if you have children, get them out of the house and be a skeptic, a hopeful skeptic, but make sure you see, you observe the change. God is big and God is powerful and God can make all things new. The old is gone, the new has come. But this is a betrayal of trust to such a degree that if you're wrong, you're taking your life into your hands. Apart from Christ, abusive men don't change. It's just that simple. They feel bad for a time. They feel guilty. Men are experts at manipulating, especially if they've exercised a position of superiority through violence. They can sound so genuinely sincere after they've hit their wife or their girlfriend. But I want to say this as clearly as I can. God does not want women in a home where their lives are endangered. One of the most frustrating things in all of our years here in San Antonio has been the number of beaten and battered women who will not leave their abusive husbands. Oh, God hates divorce. Well, he hates you getting beat up, too. Well, I don't know how we would live. I don't know how I'm going to support the children. You see, that's when we have to have faith in God, because God will take care of you. But he can't do that if you allow yourself to be in a position where you could be beaten even to the point of being killed. So please, Anonymous and anybody else listening to this program who's in the same situation, if you're being abused by your husband or by your boyfriend, run away and do it quickly. You don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to change it. The problem is not yours. It's his. And so run away. Anonymous, I don't know if you're writing for you or for somebody else, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're in a dangerous situation, if your husband is beating you, then get help now. And if you can't find anywhere else to call, call us. Area code two one zero six five eight eight three three seven, and just let them know that you're the one that wrote in with the question on the radio. We have a place for you. Here is a question from Reggie. 
We've got just a little over a minute in this half of the program. Boy, the phones are quiet this week. We'd love to have your calls. Reggie says, how many times is Jesus coming to earth? Three or two? Reggie's only coming to earth twice. He's been here once. That means there's only one time left. And he'll be coming again to this earth. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. And that's when he is going to set the world right again. That's when sin is going to be judged. That's when Jesus is going to be in control. He will return with Lord of Lords and King of Kings written on his robe and on his thigh. He's only coming twice. Now, I think the reason you asked the question three or two is because you're confused about maybe what the rapture is all about. Jesus, when he comes for his church, he's not coming to earth. The Bible says that we're going to be caught up and meet him in the air. Caught up, snatched away. And we'll meet him in the air. So he's not coming to earth. He's just coming for his bride. I always think of the prodigal father who's scanning the horizon. Well, Jesus is in heaven, scanning the horizon, waiting for the word from his father that now's the time to get to your church and we'll be caught up in the air with him. Reggie, hope that helps. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to send up our life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. We've got 30 minutes left in our program on this Wednesday. Um, 340-9585 for your calls. This is a question from Dina. Uh, she says, my question is about AA for Christians. Is AA a Christian program? Dina, AA is decidedly unchristian. It is antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Now, I want you to understand that. Uh, I, I am not opposed to programs. Programs help. Anything is better than nothing for unbelievers. But for a Christian, and that was your specific question, to go to a program, a worldly program, that contradicts what your Bible teaches is not helpful. In fact, it's harmful. I have had so many people, and this when I say these things, people always get angry with me. So um, I understand my heart is to love people. I want them to really trust in Jesus. And, and just uh, uh, Monday, somebody said, well, well, I know, no, it was Sunday, I'm sorry. Um, somebody said, well, well, a lot of people are led to Christ in AA. Well, a lot of people are led to Christ um, in, in, in almost anything. Jesus is actively searching for people. But the fact that somebody got saved at AA doesn't mean it's a good program. It is an unchristian program. It's a program that denies 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone and the new has come. It's a program that says, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And the same thing is true with the other NA and GA program. But, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, all things become new. GA, NA, AA. It's a 12-step program. Jesus says, wait a minute, that's 11 steps too many. And basically, they hold the people that go to those meetings in bondage. They're terrified that if they stop going, they're going to start drinking again. Well, where's Jesus in that? It's a secular program that says you can have whatever higher power you believe in. But there's only one higher power, and his name is Jesus. And anything else is not a higher power at all. If anything, it is a very much lower power, because it's doctrines taught by demons. Does it help some people? Yeah, some people can be scared into sobriety. We can count our days. We can 
collect our chips. We can stand up at meetings and share our stories and sort of rekindle the pain that our drinking or our gambling or our addiction to drugs caused. As long as we keep that pain fresh enough, at least there's a temporary motive not to go back to it. I actually know people that go to meetings daily. What kind of freedom is that? Where's Jesus in that? So, Dina, it's not a Christian program. It is not for Christians. And while I'm not naive, I understand a lot of Christians go, they're being ripped off in the process. And I would add that my question to them, if somebody in my church came and said, no, I don't do this with somebody that I know really well, but I would say, where's your faith? Where's your faith? So I hope that brings some clarity. And please don't send me emails. I've Every time I mention this, somebody gets offended. Uh, my heart's not to offend in telling the truth. If it offends, that's your issue, not mine. Here's a question from Don. Pastor Ron, you said before that a real believer cannot lose their salvation. If that's true, does it mean that Christians can keep sinning? Don, if somebody can keep sinning, and, and even ask this question, now I'm going to give you the benefit of that and hope that you're asking this question for somebody else. But any person who says they're a Christian that would try to justify continuing sin by virtue of the fact that they have salvation isn't really a Christian. See, this is why this question matters so much. When you meet Jesus, you fall in love with him. You're filled with his presence. His spirit comes and lives in you. And your heart changes. And it's simply impossible for somebody whose heart has been changed by Jesus to decide, well, since I'm going to heaven, I might as well keep sinning. No, that would be an identification marker that you're not really saved at all in the first place. So, Don, it is true that a real believer cannot lose their salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, we are sealed with a deposit, the promise Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of obtaining our inheritance. There's no way you can exegete that passage and come up with somebody can give their salvation back, somebody can walk away from their salvation. Jesus said, Father, I've lost none that you've given me, speaking specifically of the twelve, except the one doomed to destruction, the son of perdition, referring to Judas, who never was a believer. I think we don't understand what real salvation is. Salvation isn't head knowledge about Jesus. Salvation isn't uh, answering an altar call or being baptized. Salvation is standing face to face with the King of kings and the Lord of lords and surrendering your heart to him, taking your own life off the throne of your heart and, and, and installing Jesus on that throne and saying, Jesus, you're in charge. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we're not going to sin occasionally. But see, here's the deal, Don. When a real Christian sins, rather than figuring, well, I'm saved anyway, I might as well sin. Pastor On said, once saved, always saved. The real Christian says, Jesus, I sinned and it breaks my heart. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me and give me another chance. That's what a real believer does. That's how we are identified as belonging to him. So it's true that a real believer cannot lose their salvation, nor can we give it back or walk away from it. We can backslide, we can sin. But if you're really a Christian, there's never a moment's peace when you're sinning. And one final statement, Don, I'm going to repeat. Anybody who says they're a Christian, who thinks, well, I might as well go on sinning because I can't lose my salvation, isn't really a Christian in the first place. So I hope that helps. Here is an anonymous question. Um, Pastor Ron, I have an important decision to make, and there is a deadline to make it. How can I know for certain what God wants me to do? Anonymous, this is really an important question, because this is something that a lot of us struggle. Two things. First, let me get this out of the way. 
Uh, don't let anybody put you under a deadline to make a decision. Only Jesus can tell you what to do. You're a child of the King. You report for orders every day. Jesus reporting for duty. He's the one who tells you where to go and what to do. And if somebody's telling you you have 36 hours or 48 hours to make this decision, then just say, well, if God's not spoken to me, then I'm not going to make the decision. I'm not going to be compelled by circumstances to do something unless I know it's from the Lord. You know, when we call Jesus Lord Anonymous, we, we're putting him in a position of authority in our lives. So somebody would impose some arbitrary deadline on you. Well, if they are able to do that, then they become the authority. Now, I think the greater question here is, how do we know what God's will is when we have to make changes or we have to make decisions? And the answer, I think, is pretty straightforward. If you're with Jesus, you'll know what to do. If you're in the Word, you'll know what to do. God will confirm what He wants you to do. I think sometimes it's this thing, well, what should I do? What should I do? We just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm your servant. God takes care of His servants. So then you say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And if you are in His Word, His living and active Word is going to speak to you. It's going to confirm the decision that He wants you to make. Be a man or woman of prayer. So God can speak to you. You know, a lot of people want God to tell them what to do, but they don't give God a chance to speak to them. And what I tell people here at Calvary Chapel all the time, Anonymous, is this. If you don't know what to do, don't change anything. When you know what to do, then go for it with all of your heart. And every believer deserves to have the confidence that this is where God is leading. So be faithful with what you're doing. Honor God with your day-to-day life. Be a man of the Word. Be a man or a woman of prayer. And you will know what decision to make. Now, once you make it, the enemy's going to come. He's going to oh, that wasn't God. And there's going to be all kinds of doubt. But remember, God's got you. When your heart's right, when you're obedient... God's got you. The enemy can't prevail. And when you know for sure what it is God wants you to do, I tell people here all the time, write it down and date it and have somebody sign it. Husband and wife, have somebody sign it. This is what God told me to do on this particular day. And you know it, you just know it, then don't ever be shaken from it. But don't let anybody push you into an arbitrary deadline of what to do and how fast you have to make the decision to do it. We're too easily influenced by those kinds of circumstances, and our flesh is not a good leader. Here is a question from Malcolm. He says, uh, can I have your thoughts on fundraising in church? Malcolm, you're evidently a new listener to the program. Welcome to the show. Um, I, I talk about this a lot. I get asked about it a lot. I don't think God's house uh, people should ever be solicited. I don't think people should ever be compelled to give. I don't think people should be put under the law, meaning the tithe, to give. I think we should do what the New Testament says and give with a cheerful heart. Give because we love God and because we're grateful for what God has done. And I think sometimes, Malcolm, when churches are always asking for money, they've always got a construction project or some other such thing that they're collecting money for uh, I just think it's an insult to God now I will also say this Malcolm my thoughts on this issue are really in the minority in our church culture Uh, we don't ask people for money we never have we've been here for 23 years almost we've never let our needs be known and boy there's so much need there's times I just want to let them be known Paula teases me sometimes. She's, let me give the giving statement just once. And it's just sort of our little joke. But the truth is, God's people come to meet Jesus, not to give their money. And once they meet Jesus and they realize who he is and what he's done, and we accomplish that by teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, then they turn into really generous people. 
And at our particular church, Malcolm, we have very limited resources because we don't have space. I mean, we can't fit anybody else in the church. You should see this place on Sundays. It's a zoo, a good zoo, but it's a zoo. And yet God has, without us ever trying to help him, God has turned our church into a very generous group of people. We do everything here for free. The only time our church hears anything at all about money is when we we teach about it in the scriptures. We don't have a month dedicated to giving. Lord knows we need, or I shouldn't say that if we needed to give it, but we think he knows we need a new building. We need five times the space that we've got. If he thinks that we have that need, he'll provide for it. So I, I just, I hate the idea that we've turned God's house in the Western culture into a den of thieves. Does it take money to run a church? Of course it does. Of course it does. You know, just here, uh, we, we've got three big ministries that are free and one big evangelism ministry that we call Joy of Jesus, which can cost a lot of money over the course of a year. But just those things, nothing else, not helping people in the church, um, not any of the other things that we do, just those three things alone cost in excess of $100,000 a month. And God provides on his own. Never an excess. I tell people all the time that God's never late, but sadly he's never early either. So he keeps us on our knees. But we've done that without ever asking for a penny. So Malcolm, those are my thoughts. 340-9585. Here is a question from Malcolm. I don't know if say Malcolm or not, but uh, Malcolm says, what is the best way to read and study the Bible? Uh, for this Malcolm, if it's the same guy, glad you're asking questions. Uh, the best way to read it is to start at the beginning of a book and read it till you get to the end of the book. You sh- don't need to read from Genesis all the way through Revelation in order. Uh, that becomes very laborious, very tedious. It's, it's uh, exceptionally difficult. Um, but if, for example, you want to start in Genesis, I always think that's a good place to start because it's the beginning, the origins. That's what Genesis means. Uh, read it and read it a chapter a day, five chapters a day, whatever you come forth, whatever your reading level is. But don't just read it. Let God speak to you. His Word is living and active. So let God's Word speak to you, but at the same time, keep it manageable in terms of time and size so that you can also have a New Testament book going. Um, Reading Genesis and John together is a great combination. Reading Joshua and Revelation together or Joshua and Ephesians together is a great combination. But read to get to the end of a book. Now, again, especially in the Old Testament, some of the books are really, really long. So break it down into sections or in chapters or in thoughts, whatever can work, but read it systematically. Let me also say this to you, Malcolm. When you read it, um, read it with... The faith that says, God, you, I need you to speak to me from this book or from whatever my reading is today. And don't cut it short. A lot of times when we're reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit's going to sort of prick our hearts with conviction. We need to deal with those things. And as we do, then God is able to reveal more of himself to us in our hearts. Don't read with the intent of trying to prove your systematic theology let your systematic theology be developed and defined by what you read. Now, I know that's difficult for a lot of people with church backgrounds, but one of the things that I really consider a blessing 
is that I didn't have any church background. I had no religious baggage when I came to Christ. I hadn't opened a Bible ever, and I'd only been to church a couple times when my grandma dragged me to church when I was a real young kid. And so I was a blank sheet, and I just figured, okay, I'm going to start reading this. This is supposedly the Bible, God's Word. So I didn't start reading systematic theologies. I didn't start listening to preachers on the radio tell me how to interpret the Bible. I just let the Holy Spirit speak to my heart. And then as I began to grow and mature in my faith, then I was able to, to read some people that were very influential in my life. But the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, make it your hobby, make it your delight. It will change your life forever if you do that. So, Malcolm, I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585. We've got a little over five minutes left, so still time for a call if anybody wants to bail me out. Here is a question from Nicole. Pastor Ron, are Christians required to tithe to their church or they can, or can they tithe to other good causes? Nicole, the money you have, all of it belongs to Jesus. As a new uh, I'm sorry, as a born-again believer, a New Testament Christian, the tithe isn't for you. Tithe means a tenth. That, were whole, that was what Jews were required to give under the law. Now, we are under grace. Gloriously, we're under grace. Logic tells you that if under law somebody was compelled to give 10%, how much should those of us who are under grace give, it should be way more than what the law compelled. So give with a cheerful heart. Give, as I said earlier in the program, because you love God and because you're grateful to Him. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty if you don't give. Don't let anybody convince you that the law is for you. It is not. Jesus fulfilled the law. Now, Nicole, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't give. It just means that you work that out with Jesus. Here's what I tell my church to do, Nicole. I tell my church, thank God for everything that you have. Lay it all at his feet, Barnabas did in the end of Acts chapter 3. Lay it all at his feet. Say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with your money? Be a good steward. If you do that, he'll be able to trust you with his money and he'll provide more. Not for you to spend on your own comfort. Although, there's nothing wrong with comfort. But, how does he want you to spend his money? When you start thinking of your money is 90% yours and 10% his, then you don't understand who he is and what he's done for you at all. My final thought on this, Nicole, is um, every Christian should be a, a member of a church. I don't mean a formal member. We don't have formal membership here at Calvary Chapel, but most churches do, and that's fine. But if you call the place where you go to church your church home, then that ought to always be the first place that you give. We can do a lot more with what people give than you can as an individual because a whole bunch of people contributing to a larger pot. And then we're free with your support and blessing to, I don't mean you particularly, Nicole, but the people in the church, to follow the vision that God has given us. That's why our money goes to our medical clinic free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office. We have a pediatrician there, a nutritionist there. Been open for five years. We've seen in excess of 20,000 patients. People get saved there virtually every day. 90% of the people that come to Malta Medical are unbelievers, not from our church. And we get an opportunity to minister to them. Same with our free school. Same thing with Manor House. A house dedicated to giving women a new start in life. 
we can do a lot of good with the money that people from who call Calvary Chapel their church home freely give. So that ought to be the first place. Now, it doesn't mean it's the only place you can give. You're, if you're generous and you want to give to others as well, then give. But don't take from your church the money that you give to their general offering fund. Don't take from them and give to others. If your church is a good steward of the money that's given to them, and by the way, you should know what your church is doing with the money. As a contributing member, you have a right to know. If your church isn't being a good steward, then maybe you're in the wrong church. If your church has sort of a backwards view of money, and they're always trying to get you to give them their money, maybe you're going to the wrong kind of church. Nicole, hope that answers your question. Uh, here's the last question. We're a little over a minute. Darren said, was God justified in destroying the whole world in the flood? Darren, God is justified in doing everything that he does. Genesis says that the whole world was only, uh, let me rephrase, every inclination of man was only evil all the time. So mankind was in rebellion against God. God judged the world and started over with one family. Yes, he was justified. There were no innocent people who died in the flood. People said, what about kids who died? Well, if kids who died in the flood, and there were many, 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 many kids who died in the flood, the minute they lost their life, they went to the place we call paradise. That's pretty gracious, don't you think? Hey, thanks for tuning in today. The phone was quiet, but I hope at least some of the questions were interesting to you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember, ladies, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio on the Date Day Edition program. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.